Let's pray together. Jesus, where we are in our journey, wherever it is, it's known to you. Where we have been, where we are, where we will be, because in the beginning was you and the Word. You, you were God, you are God, you will be God. And so in the midst of the zigs and zags of this thing we call a human journey, and recently we've all experienced plenty of zigs and zags, things that have broken our heart, things that have alarmed us, things that have burdened us, things that have motivated us, things that have reminded us of how small we are, how far we have to grow, and also things that have reminded us how big you are, how enough you are. And so we all gather through this thing called technology. And even though we haven't been able to gather in person, even some of us, we're gathered right now by your spirit and ask that you would speak into us. Word of God, logos, speak. Word who became flesh, speak. Speak light, speak life. And uh, my journey and to my friend's journeys, And I pray that you would enable us to see you a little bit better. As some Greeks said long ago, coming to the disciples, we'd like to see Jesus. I pray that would be our heart's yearning right now. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak to us through the written word, through the living word, in the name of the word? Amen. Amen. Well, I've got in my pocket a ton of potential. It's a seed. Seeds sometimes are kind of colorful and they're things that you like to look at, but it's just potential, that's all. Until you do something risky. That seed might be pretty content being looked at and doing its thing on the outside, but a very frightening thing is that seed needs to go down into the soil and something can begin to happen where that potential can take root. Uh, Friday this week, I was on a Zoom call with a good friend of mine named Mako Fujimura, and we were talking a little bit about his book that came out several years ago called Culture Care. And in the book, he talks about a pear tree on his farm, which he and I have stood next to and looked at and talked about. I've been up at his farm with him in New Jersey. And he writes about it in his book. And he talks about how that seed that originated that pear tree once was very small, and then it went into that soil and became a little sprout, and then grew into something full-grown that was downright beautiful and also generative. And the beauty and the generative ability of that pear tree in terms of scale, the beauty and the generative ability is way beyond the scale of the size. It's way out of proportion. A lot more happens once that seed goes into the ground. For that pear tree, 
becomes wood for fires and warmth for people, the, the limbs that shed and fall over the years. Maybe it provides wood for walls or wood for art. Maybe that what was once a little seed has, has germinated into something magnificent that creates beauty or solidity to a landscape or prevents erosion. Maybe that tree ends up inspiring poetry. Maybe it ends up inspiring a play or a photograph or a painting. Maybe that tree that once was very, very small, once it went into the ground and maintained its essence, but it was also transformed into something far greater than it had ever been. Maybe it can teach scientists or provide a shade, shade for children to play or inspire a man or a woman to reflect on who they are as human beings in the midst of creation. And it all starts not just with a seed, but with a seed dying. That's the phrase that Jesus used. We're going through John's Gospel, so if you've got a Bible, turn to the Gospel of John. And if you don't have one, you can follow along with us. I'm going to start reading in chapter 12, verse 20, but let me tell you a little bit about where we are in the, in the narrative. We've just taken a shift these last couple of weeks in the passages where we're now in what is called Holy Week in liturgical church history, Passion Week. It's the, the last seven days of Jesus' life before the resurrection. So we're in the midst of that week, and what's happening is the mood is changing in John's gospel. Uh, the cost that Jesus is paying is becoming more and more evident the cost you'll pay on the cross. And he's also inviting us and summoning us as human beings to take a similar path of passion. We've got a, a price to pay, a cost. Following Jesus costs us, it comes out in this text. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the festival. This is the Passover festival. And I want to stop there just for a moment. I won't spend all the time, this much time on every, every one of the verses. But there were some Greeks among those. This is saying a lot. There's been so much already happening in John's gospel where Jesus is talking with the Jews and the Jewish leaders, and they are pushing back. And Jesus is making it clear, I, I came to fulfill what is known as Judaism in the law, but I didn't come to be limited to that. I've come for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. And the, the word that's, that's used there, they, they came up to the festival and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. I love that. In, in Greek, what they are saying is essentially we want to interview him. He's conveyed, he's already cleansed the temple and talked to, in, been in the court of the Gentiles, part of the temple. There was a place for the Gentiles to come and it had been crowded out by all the religious hucksters and there was no room for the Gentiles to come and Jesus was defending them. He was always open to them and they're saying there's something here, we want to talk to him. And we don't know if uh, Jesus came right away. If they ended up talking, we assume they did. But Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come 
what these Gentiles are asking is, is an indication to all of us, that, all of you, that the hour has come. It's time. He lived 30 years in obscurity. The last three years he's been in this, this ministry of great teaching and miracles and displays of power and love and compassion. Now he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you. Remember, very truly, it's an Aramaic expression, amen, amen, truly, truly. He says, I want you to pay attention to this. So we'll come back to this in a minute, but I'll still read it in the context of the larger passage. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, he becomes very transparent. His, His humanity, fully God, fully human, his humanity is coming out. The price he's about to pay, he's aware of it. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, because it was for this very reason I came to this hour. He did not die as an afterthought. No human being has ever been birthed in this planet with the distinct purpose of coming to die with the exception of Jesus. And he's the only one that didn't have to die. He came. He says, no, I, nobody takes my life from me. I'm going to give it up. Father, glorify your name. At the epicenter of redemptive history is the cross. And Jesus knows that's where he's headed. And he's been headed there his whole life. And then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there, don't pay attention. John is bringing this up. He's writing this within the lifetime. A lot of the people that were, were there. And so he's giving witness to some, a, a yet another miracle. He says, the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So they, they heard the voice of God. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now's the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth... And that's a direct reference to the cross. He refers to that numerous times, which is what they would say. Because in crucifixion, you would lay the prisoner down, the, the, uh, the one who was condemned. And they would probably usually be on a crossbar, and the center bar would already be in the ground. They would lay them down. They would nail their hands onto the crossbar, and then they would lift them up and put them on the cross. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. You need to seize this moment, he says. And you know what? He's saying that to you and me right now as well. See, we've got to seize this moment. What he's saying to us, how he's impressing us and shaping us. Whoever walks in the dark doesn't know where they're going, but believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. And we have, when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Hmm. 
Our vision here at Northland is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. Engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. That vision is rooted in John chapter 10, verse 10, when Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, and I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. So this whole notion of engaging people to be fully alive, there's heart-beating life and lung-breathing life, but then there's the life of God, and Jesus says, I didn't come to make you religious, I came to restore you to where you were oriented as human beings, what's your purpose for? And that's to be fully alive to me. It's referring to the life of God. But I, I want to contrast this statement. A lot of people uh, take this out of context and turn uh, following Jesus into something that's happy, clappy, and we don't have any problems, and this whole life to the full becomes kind of the coasting thing. It's not the kind of life it's, we're talking about. It's not something where Jesus is coming just to improve us. Something goes deeper than that. Now look at the verse that we just read in John chapter 12, verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now go back to John 10.10, 10, back up there. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, and that sounds exciting, which it is. Now go to John 12, 25 again. But anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What's up? How do you, how do you rectify this to? Well, the English words that we see as life here, there's actually two Greek words. The first two are referring to suke. Anyone who loves their suke, you could say ego, psyche. This is referring to the ego. Anyone who loves their ego, who, who idol, who's idolatrous about themselves. You, all of us are oriented to care about ourselves first and to say it's all about me. And that's what ego does. It seeks to say, I'm, I'm all about me. And Jesus says, you've got to lay that suke down. You've got to die to that to experience the zoe, which is that it, its companion with eternal in this passage. But every time you see zoe in John, it's referring to that life of God. Uh, it's not equated with, with heaven. Eternal life is a qualitative, not just quantitative, experience of being with God in intimacy with God that begins the moment we've come to Christ, and then in heaven, it's no longer diluted. And what needs to happen for me to experience that full life of the gospel? To be fully alive? Is I've got my life, and this life has been created with great potential to exhibit the life of God, but I'm fallen. I'm consumed with me. And I look at that soil, and I, I don't want to be immersed in that. I don't want to die. And Jesus is the way for this to become this is you need to trust me and lay down your ego. Matthew chapter 7 verse 13, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. 
That's zoe. Remember, we've talked about it before. In John's Gospels and, and Epistles, the, the word life that we translate life appears about 71 times. Only about 15 of those are referring to heart beating, lung breathing. Suke or bias are the two words usually that appear. The rest are zoe. He says, Zoe, and you see it in Matthew as well. You see it in Luke. You, you see it in Mark. He says, wide is the gate small. Wide is, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few, only a few find it. Everybody's heart's beating and lungs breathing. But Jesus has said, narrow is the pathway because of the immensity of sin. I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You've got to come, you've got to enter back into that zoe, that life of God, that fulfilled humanity that you were intended for. But it's, there's a narrow pathway. It's not, it's, it's, it's not difficult from your standpoint in terms of, uh, okay, it's narrow and it's, it's, it's a happenstance. It's, it's a, a roll of the dice. Not in that sense, but he says, narrow is the way because I'm the only way. For this seed to fulfill its potential, it's not a matter of throwing it on some carpet. It's not a matter of gussing it up and surrounding it with a lot of other decorations. I can put this seed in a brand new car, a brand new house, or put it on vacation. It's still going to be a seed. I can get all the adornments and titles and degrees, and I can you know, put money all around it. It's still going to be a seed. So how does this seed become what it was meant to be. Bury it? I don't want to bury it. I, I mean, my, I, I'm important to me. I, I, uh, wait a minute. Wait. And there, therein lies the cost of the gospel. Jesus says, you've got to trust me. Go back to John 12, look at those three verses. Very truly, I tell you, verse 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And anyone who loves their life will lose it. And while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. In this passage, I mean, it's just, it's powerful. Our journeys and Jesus' journeys begin to overlap. Because what begins to become very clear is Jesus is going to give his life in order to bring life to the world, zoe to the world. But for us to experiencing it, it's going to cost us our lives. Take a look. Jesus' life, giving his life, for the life of the world, us giving our lives to experience that life, that's the parallel path we follow. He's headed to the cross. And it, the, neither of these are popular. This was not popular. You can, you can see in that text, people are pushing back. Wait a minute, you're the Messiah. You don't need to die. Uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1 that the, the cross is, is, is foolishness to people. 
the death of Jesus. And we don't want to give our lives. Everybody says, hey, the way for me to find my life is to find my life. Jesus says, no, the way to find your life is to lose your life. You guys know the whole good news, bad news jokes. You know, we've all got them. I'm not going to risk giving you one. I'll save that for giving my sons tomorrow on, on a Zoom call. I'll give them a, good, a couple of good dad jokes that they'll laugh out of politeness. But, uh, but you know the good news. The good news, bad news. There's some bad news, good news, which you want to hear first. There's some good news and bad news in this text, but I'm going to rephrase it. It's, it's, it's hard news and it's hopeful news, and they go together. Go back through these three verses, and I want you to look at how there's hard news in each of these verses. Verse 24, the hard news is that a seed has to die. The hopeful news, but if it does, it produces much fruit. The hard news is if we love our life, we're going to lose it. If I'm all about just kind of adorning this and not... Coming to the feet of Jesus, I'm going to lose it. But if I submit my life and say, Jesus, I give this to you. I want to put it in the soil of your grace and your love and your calling. If we submit, we'll gain life. You look at verse 26, twice, first part of verse 26, we must follow him. Here's the hard news. We must follow him to the cross. We've got to follow him. We've got to embrace a Savior that died a sacrificial death. And that's foolishness to the world. But if we follow him there, we'll be with him there, he says, in the second part of that first half of verse 26. The second half of verse 26, we must serve him, but if so, he'll honor us. Hard news, hopeful news. Hard news, hopeful news. So how do I experience his life? I embrace, I embrace the hard and I also embrace the hopeful. Now, there are a lot of people that would say, okay, great, this whole life of the gospel, let's embrace the hopeful. You can't not embrace the hard. It's back and forth. If I want to experience the potential and to have a hopeful calling to my life, there will be a hard step of, of submission. But this is what seeds are meant for. Nobody, I'm, I'm guessing nobody within the sound of my voice right now has ever given uh, somebody important to them in their lives on an anniversary or a birthday or something, uh, you, you couples out there, hey, honey, I brought you a seed for our anniversary, for your birthday. We don't do that. That's not what this was intended to be. This was intended to become this. You and I are meant for so much more. But we've got to embrace the hard in order to also embrace the hopeful. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to you guys about being down in the jungles of Ecuador and Jim Elliott and the quote that I shared with you then I have sometime before the graduate of Wheaton College and went down to visit the Waldani and some of the the men, one of them who actually was part of the the war party that, that killed Jim and his four friends. But one of Jim's famous quotes that I gave you a couple of weeks ago, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. That's embracing the hard to gain what he cannot lose. That's embracing the hopeful. And there's this rhythm that a seed moves into to embrace both the hard and also embrace the hopeful. 
This is the fullness of life, but it will cost me. The fullness of zoe, life, but it will cost me my suke, my ego, my psyche life. Luke 9, 23, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. So this is not just one time on a daily basis because I'm, my, my ego is always coming out, me wanting to be first. And the way for me to be fulfilled as a human being is to find myself once again at home in Jesus. Follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? I can gain all the adornments and the bank accounts and the newspaper articles and celebrity status and the vacation homes, the, the titles, the trinkets, the treasures, and I, the price I pay is I will say that's more important than the life of God. Jesus says to experience my life, you've got to embrace the hard and embrace the hopeful. You just embrace the hard without the hopeful, that's asceticism. We're trying to earn something. We embrace the hopeful without the hard, that's easy believism. Neither are biblical, neither the gospel. It's one and two coming together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, Lewis talks about, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about uh, cottages and palaces, and he says, what we do is we come to God, and we invite Him into our lives, and we, we Jesus, I want you to come into my life, and uh, we think he, at first, you see, okay, he's going to, and he actually says he's borrowing from a parable of George MacDonald. So he comes in and he starts fixing a broken drain pipe here or a, uh, a loose hinge there, and we say, yeah, those things needed to happen. And then all of a sudden, he starts tearing down walls and adding wings and creating stories and causing things that are, are kind of painful to go through. And they say, whoa, 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 Jesus, what are you up to? And Lewis says what McDonald was talking about is so often we give our lives to Jesus thinking that he just wants to improve our cottage when actually he's wanting to build a palace. We're thinking cottage, he's thinking palace. We think accessorize. He didn't come to me as a seed and say, hey, let me just give you a little religious cloak to continue to be a seed. He didn't come to accessorize me, he came to transform me. He didn't come just to decorate me. There's not a scarcity, there's an abundance of what he wants to do. He wants to fully fulfill himself through us. What does Jesus look like? Looks like you and me walking on this planet filled with his spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory. My hope of having a life of significance is knowing that Jesus is in me, and that involves me embracing the hard news and also embracing the hopeful news so that people see Jesus. And the Jesus they see in me will be different from the Jesus they see in you because we're his image bearers. And the beauty is 
Who we all are together make the body of Christ. We together display His splendor. We together reveal who He is. Christ in you. I read a woman's blog a few years ago, and she went into the store to get a blueberry pomegranate juice. <laughs> and she was looking on the label, and she saw that's great. But then she looked, and uh, filtered water was the first ingredient. And you know, in labels, the way that the uh, regulations go, the dominant ingredient has to be listed first. And so she started going down the list, and she said, saw there was some pear juice concentrate. She didn't get to blueberry or pomegranate till four and seven. Really, it wasn't. And even though the label, she said, said all natural juice, it was misleading because it might be all natural juice, but it was just blueberry and pomegranate flavoring. It wasn't the real juice. And what if you and I had a label, an ingredients label on us? Where would Jesus be? The number one ingredient? Or five or six down? Christ in you, the hope of glory. How does that happen? Here's a, here's a commercial for next week. What we're going to unpack. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith. So what's happening? It's Christ in me, the hope of glory, my hope of significance. I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice that phrase, by faith. Verse 31 of John chapter 20, we've looked at it numerous times, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. By faith. By believing. How do I unpack this? For every yes in my life, there's a no. And so every time I say yes to Jesus, I'm saying no to some other things about my ego. And it's not that I'm being squelched, I'm being fulfilled and freed, but it comes with me embracing the hard. Remember that. Number one, embrace the hard. And number two, embrace the hopeful. Take a look at that. And once you stare for a minute, there's something wrong with that. This is actually number two, and this is number three. What number one is, is embracing him. The embracing the hard and embracing the hopeful is a response. He takes the first step in this dance. Not me. And it's a response to his grace and his truth and his way. And so I fixate on who he is in worship and submission. That enables me to embrace the hard, which then paves the way for me to embrace the hopeful. C.S. Lewis tells about in his book, the classic, The Great Divorce, about a ghost. It's the uh, there's a beautiful allegory, but bottom line, there's a ghost that is a fallen man, a fallen creature, and a lizard's on his shoulder, basically in the ego. And the angel of God comes along and says, you wanted me to take care of that? And he says, no, that'll hurt too much. He said, it might, but you know it's causing you more problems than good. Finally, he lets him kill it. 
And what happens is the ghost is transformed into a triumphant, beautiful man. And that lizard is transformed into a stallion. And the ghost that has become a man gets on that lizard that now has become a stallion and rides off to the mountains of God. It's a matter of me with that lizard of an ego embracing who Jesus is and saying, Jesus, this does not feel natural. A seed thinks to be natural, I need to be out here. And no, I'm going to trust you that I need to die. This is where I belong in submission to you. And I do that because I trust who you are. I trust your grace and your truth and your love and your purpose for me. And what begins to happen is the beauty of Jesus begins to come out in my life. And that's what the body of Christ looks like. Tons of seeds, all submitting themselves to the Lordship of Jesus and saying, we're going to embrace Him, and out of that, we will embrace the hard, and we will die daily and also embrace the hopeful so that the world may know that Jesus is King. We're going to embrace Him together before we leave. I want to encourage you. Right now, settle yourself in a posture of submission. Who do we go to? Who are we embracing? Kevin DeYoung, the theologian, talks about we invent these Jesuses and our religiosity. You know, Starbucks Jesuses we go to and think, okay, he's going to be kind of about our, our uh, social agenda or maybe a political agenda. Uh, there's the, the, the touchdown Jesuses that are that we, we create in our mind that are all about how to win the Super Bowl. There's therapist Jesus that we come to. Hey, just come help me cope. There's the guru Jesus that's the spirituality kick. He says some people create in their minds. Or the good example Jesus, if I'll just follow him. Or the gentle Jesus has got you know, manicured nails and a permanent hair and is always just saying non-offensive things. Or the platitude Jesus is all about just saying stuff that we can put on our, our refrigerators. Now, the Jesus that we embrace to be willing to die so that we might live is a Jesus that I'm going to let my friend Jamila tell you about right now, and then we're going to have a lot of other folks from our midst, some other seeds that have gone into the ground, and we're all going to exalt who he is. Let's worship right now.